Well, we have officially covered the entire book of Galatians verse by verse. And uh, one thing that struck me, uh, I appreciate you bearing with me and doing a much longer uh, responsive reading than we normally do. I decided for a responsive reading to go through the London Baptist Confession of Faith and take all of the places where the theology is quoted from and pulled from the book of Galatians. And what I found was we had about an hour's worth of responsive reading, so I cut it a bit in half, and it was still quite long. And so it just struck me how much fuller the theology of the book of Galatians was than I ever thought before we started this series. That essentially from the beginning and the end to the confessions, whether you do the London Baptist or the Westminster, the book of Galatians is regularly cited throughout. It, it truly covers so much of Christian life and Christian theology. And so I decided what we are going to do is to do a, a, a little summary sermon. Like I said, last week, last week was more of a topical thing. This week is also going to be a little bit more of a topical thing. Uh, we're not going to walk through a passage verse by verse, but I want us just to sort of go through the book of Galatians in a very quick shot. And the goal and the aim and the hope of this is that we'll have some kind of very beneficial and hopeful reminder of some of the key things we learned throughout this book. Because one of the things about sermons is sermons, and not just sermons, I think all the worship of God that we do on Sunday morning can be said this way. But specifically talking about sermons, the way they impact us a lot of times is a bit more spiritual and mysterious than we think. And what I mean by that is you don't remember every sermon you've ever heard. You probably remember very few sermons you've ever heard. So the question is, is are they beneficial? Like if I can barely even remember them, barely remember what the pastor preached last week, let alone that one sermon I heard five years ago. But I think what they do is they just sort of spiritually correct our souls and they're just little nudges on our walk through life because we know that once you start off in one slightly wrong direction, you maintain that, you're eventually very far apart. So sermons, the worship of God just kind of nudges us, keeps us on the narrow path, if you will, all the worship of God does. So it's not necessarily impacts us in this sense where every single sermon I've ever heard is on my mind and on my lips and I'm ready to repeat it. It's not like that. And so as we've spent a few months in the book of Galatians, it's easy to sort of forget, what did we learn in Galatians chapter 1? Because it's been a long time since we were in Galatians chapter 1. So I think now that we've worked through the book, and we've let every single verse of scripture of this book enter our minds and enter our hearts and expound upon it. Let's just do a brief summary of the highlights. What is the foundation principles of this book? Why did Paul write the book of Galatians? And what is it that he ultimately wanted to communicate? And we're going to do this summary in kind of two ways. This is a, a new preaching method I've never tried before. Uh, so thank you for being guinea pigs. Uh, the first, it's, it's basically a 10-point sermon, but it's not going to be very long, I promise. At least by my standards. Uh, so don't be intimidated by that. I want to give you five themes of the book of Galatians. Five theological themes. And I'll explain more on that in just a second. And then after I give the five themes, we're then going to look at five, what I'm calling foundation doctrines. 
the second half, the five foundation doctrines, or what I'm calling the pillars of the book of Galatians, those are the, we're going to walk through the book together then. But with these themes I'm giving you, I'm going to kind of rush through them a little bit. I'm going to cite a lot of the book of Galatians. And obviously, if you want to track along with me, you can, but it's going to be pretty quickly. But once we get to that second half, that's when we're going to walk through together. So if you're getting frustrated, like, oh, he's moving too quick, we're, we're, we're going to slow it down. But let me just tell you how I'm understanding themes and foundations differently. There are certain doctrines and principles in the book of Galatians which sort of serve as the primary reason Paul wrote. And I've got five of them, and I think that these five principles really summarize, here's what Paul wants us to take away from this book. Here's what Paul wanted his original audience to take away from this book. And those are the kind of the five pillars to the house of Galatian, the foundation that's laid that the house of Galatians stands upon. But as Paul is expounding upon these pillars, he brings so much doctrine in that we have these other themes that support these pillars or rest on these pillars that we find out throughout Scripture. So the themes are kind of like the furniture in the house, and the, the pillars are what the house is standing on. So let me walk you through, as briefly as I can, five themes. And by the way, these were surprising to me, all of them but one. Five themes that we covered throughout the book of Galatians. The first one, this is the one that wasn't surprising. This was the theme that I knew was predominant in the book and why I wanted to preach it, is this theme of justification. All throughout the book of Galatians, we wrestle with this issue of justification. For example, Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says later on in chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Those are just a couple examples of this issue of justification. And I cannot emphasize how important this doctrine is. As a matter of fact, during our Sunday school this morning, uh, R.C. Sproul was talking about justification and imputation, and he said something to the effect of, this is perhaps the most important theological principle of the last, I can't remember what he said, but he, he emphasizes well that this is so important. I, I, I wanted to preach through just Galatians so that we could talk about justification because it's so important. And as Paul just said, all throughout the book of Galatians is this theme that you are not justified by works. And that was a huge part of our confession that we just said. Your works cannot get you into heaven. They're too dirty. They're too impure. They're not enough. You have broken God's law. Your life, your righteousness, you stand no chance it's entering God's presence, standing before the throne of God and saying, I earned this, baby. I deserve to be here. You will stand no chance that. So Paul labors throughout the book to show us that Christ, he died the death that we deserve to die. That Christ, he lived the life that we were supposed to live. And faith is the only access we have to Christ. The law cannot serve as a means to reach out and grab Christ. The law can only condemn you. It is your faith and your faith alone that is the empty hand that reaches and grabs onto Christ. It was important for Paul to teach that you are justified by faith and by nothing but faith. Not by works of the Mosaic law or he goes on to say by works of any law. But by faith and faith 
alone. And this is why, by the way, the book of Galatians alongside Romans took center stage during the Reformation because this is potentially the key issue that separates us from Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. That we believe we are justified by faith and by nothing but faith. And Galatians teaches that with great clarity. But that's what I was expecting. I was expecting to talk about justification. As a matter of fact, I was actually surprised at how little I ended up talking about justification. There was so much more here than I ever remembered. For example, we had an incredible amount of our second theme, which is the study of pneumatology. Justification follows under the branch of soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Justification is part of salvation. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneumos is the Greek word for breath, wind, or spirit. Pneumatology is the study of the Spirit. I was amazed at how the book of Galatians is just covered with the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is all over this book. And I don't mean in the sense that he inspired it. In that sense, he's all over every word of every book. But I mean, Paul brings the Spirit into his argument often and regularly. We were reminded in this book at how vital the Holy Spirit is to the Christian church and to our Christian life. And he, he, he brings up the Spirit in two different ways. He actually involves the Spirit even in the work of our justification. And this is really important because we, t- we tend to think of the Spirit's only role as being sanctification. But, but Paul says there is an intimate link between the Spirit and justification. He says in, for example, chapter 3, verse 2, He says, let me ask you only this. By the way, this is just after what we just read about how you can't be justified by the law. And he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes, Jesus was crucified. Then he says in verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? You see the intimate role the Holy Spirit plays with justification? That Paul, can ascend, that Paul can sort of equate, if you will, you are justified by faith alone. And that is essentially the same sentence as you received the Spirit by faith alone. He is, as another place in Scripture calls him, the Spirit of justification. He is the one who applies the work of Christ to us. and He is the one who seals us as the justified, as the elect before God. He is the spirit of justification. No Holy Spirit, no justification. There's no such thing as a regenerate, a regenerate, justified person who has not received the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you're justified by faith. What's my proof of that? You receive the Spirit by faith. And no one said, whoa, whoa, logical leap, Paul. Those are two different things. Maybe I received the Spirit by faith, but I was justified by works. What are you going to do with that, Paul? No, Paul says, Spirit, justification, same thing, faith alone. He repeats this in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, he says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So again, justification is not only paradox, or not paradox, it is not only put on the other side of the pendulum, of the scale as works, the Spirit is also put on the other side of works. 
It is by the Spirit, through the Spirit by faith that we are justified. But the Spirit plays an intimate role in our justification. He is the Spirit of justification. Then we won't read this, but all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 is essentially the Spirit takes center stage in our sanctification. And that's why we eventually worked in chapter 6 to the famous fruit of the Spirit. Your good works come from where? The Spirit of God within you. You are not under the law, but under what? The Spirit. You are not led by the law, but led by what? The Spirit. You will not reap eternal life from works of the flesh. You will reap eternal life from who? The Spirit. All of chapter 5, all of chapter 6, the Holy Spirit of God takes center stage. I was simply astonished and blown away at how foundational the Holy Spirit is to the book of Galatians. So we talked about justification. We talked about the Holy Spirit. Another important theme was this theme of freedom. Paul says in chapter 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And that follows all of chapter 4, which was the reading of the Old Testament, which gave a spiritualized understanding of Hagar and Sarah. And uh, this whole second half of chapter 4 was all about how if you're in Christ, you're a descendant of the free woman. If you're outside of Christ, you're a descendant of the slave woman. So almost all of chapter 4, concluding in chapter 5, was this issue of spiritual freedom. Paul wants us to understand that the gospel is a gospel of freedom. And that anything outside of Christ, anything outside of the gospel, can rightly be thought of as slavery. He tells the Gentiles, you were once enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You can be enslaved to false religion. You can be enslaved to the law. And what does that mean? It means you are enslaved to its rules, enslaved to its condemnation, which means you are enslaved to your very own sin. Life outside of Christ can rightly be thought of as slavery. You are enslaved to sin. You are enslaved to death. There's a verse in the Psalms that says, When the wicked die, death shall be their shepherd. We are all sheep in a certain sense. And for some of us, Christ is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. But for others, death is their shepherd. Sin is their shepherd. Condemnation is their shepherd. Paul wants us to understand that in Christ, you have truly found freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from the law. One of my favorite things, though, was... This, so justification, the Holy Spirit, freedom. The fourth principle, fourth theme, if you will, spiritual theme, is this theme that we've been saying over and over again, this phrase, union with Christ. Paul gives us some incredible insights to what we mean, what theologians mean when they use the phrase union with Christ. By the way, it's in my experience that in, in evangelical, the evangelical world, I don't think we talk about the union of Christ very often. It's not a doctrine that's on our lips very often. It's not a doctrine we discuss very much. But throughout the church history, this has been a huge doctrine of discussion. You will find theologians from the beginning of the centuries talking about our mystical union with Christ. Our spiritual union with Christ. In other words, union with Christ is a reminder that Christianity is more than a mere philosophy. It is a philosophy. It's not less than that. It is. Christianity is a frame of view. It's a worldview. It's a philosophy that tells you how to interpret and understand the world. 
So it is that. It's a philosophy with a set of principles, a set of beliefs. But it's more than that. And union of, the union we have with Christ by faith shows us that. Because what it tells us is the gospel is not just a set of facts, a historical facts that you assent to. The gospel is so much more than that. Again, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. There are lots of true things out there that you can believe. But by believing in them, there's no change. You don't change as a person. Two plus two equals four. Someone can easily prove that to you. You go, okay, I see it. I believe that. But you're still who you are. Right? You're still who you are. The gospel is not like two plus two equals four. Oh, Jesus came from heaven, was born of a virgin, lived a life, died, rose again. You should believe that. Okay, yeah, historically, I look at the evidence. Yeah, I believe that. No, once you believe, something happens. Something happens. Something beyond just mere, I am assenting to the truth of this historical fact. You are spiritually and mysteriously united to Jesus Christ. You change. Spiritually, you change. Your whole life is changed once you believe that. And, and Paul brings this up in, in a multiplicity of ways, but the two primary ones, which are very similar to each other, are found in chapter 2 and chapter 6. He says this in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, what was believing in the gospel for Paul? When Paul believed the gospel in this mystical, mysterious way, he then joined Jesus on the cross. And he died. Jesus' crucifixion is his crucifixion. We see this, by the way, all throughout the New Testament, this idea that being in Christ means I share in all that Christ is. We are told in the book of Ephesians that you have been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Christ is at, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Where are you seated? Well, you're seated in some cushy chairs in Redeemer Christian Fellowship, and that's true. That's where you're seated. You're in Roswell, New Mexico. But according to the book of Galatians, you are simultaneously seated in heaven. Past tense already happened. You are with Christ seated in heaven. The Bible talks about how he is our righteousness. That he became sin even though he knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness. He is our righteousness. You see, you come to Christ by faith and what happens? You're seated in the heavenly places. You receive Christ's righteousness. You receive Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You receive Christ's eternal life. Isn't it interesting? Uh, the Bible tells us that when we are saved, we inherit eternal life. You know what the problem is with that? You can't be eternal. That doesn't make sense. You can have everlasting life. But you can't have eternal life. What does eternal mean? It means no end, but also no beginning. But your life had a beginning. So how can we possibly call your life eternal? You know why? Because you are sharing in Christ's life. That's what eternal life is. You are reaping Christ's life. His life is eternal. His is truly eternal and he gives it to you. 
He says the same thing in chapter 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We share in his crucifixion. We share in his righteousness. We share in his life. We share in his glory. We share these things by union with him. So again, the gospel is not just a fact of history you believe. The gospel unites you to Jesus. It changes you. The last thing we saw, so just brief summary, justification, pneumatology, freedom, union with Christ. And the last one I'm going to put is this issue of unity. And unity was all over Galatians. And that makes sense because what's, remember what's the background of Galatians? False teachers came in and what did they do? They disrupted everything. They changed the gospel. They changed the doctrines. They were pressuring people to do things. There was factions. There was infighting. So Paul is obsessed with unifying this church. He was obsessed with unity. And related to this, the way he establishes their unity, by the way, was by uniting all of them in the people of God. So when I say unity, I'm also talking about being the people of God. It amazed me, before we started this, I was just, for some reason, I just misremembered Galatians. I just thought every chapter was going to be about justification. And in a sense, it is. But we spent far more time talking about Abraham than we did about justification. And almost every chapter in the chunk, middle chunk of this book is dealing with the Abrahamic promise. Sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, the seed of Abraham. You see, for Paul, he knew, just like the Judaizers and the Galatians also knew, that the new covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. And that to be saved was to come under the covenant of Christ. And they knew that Abraham's covenant was that promised covenant. So the whole point of the Judaizers' message was you cannot be saved if you are not one of Abraham's descendants because that is who God promised the new covenant to. And how do you become one of Abraham's descendants? Circumcision, Jewish law. So the bigger theme, probably even bigger than justification, the bigger theme for Paul was to come into this church and say, okay, I agree that you do need to be Abraham's descendants to receive the promise of Abraham. I agree that this was promised to Abraham's descendants, but Paul's whole point is you don't understand how you become that. How is it that we become children of Abraham? And he says all throughout the letter, it is by faith. And we'll look at that more later. So he wants to unite us as Christ's and Abraham's offspring. He wants to unite us as one family, one church, one people. And that that union only comes through our shared faith in Christ. That's why he says in chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, right? More union with Christ language. We literally wear him. We put him on. He's not just a belief we hold. We wear him. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see this emphasis on unity. Bringing us together as one people, one church, one bride, one family. Pushing out all of those things the Judaizers were trying to bring in to divide. Well, you're a Jew and you're a Gentile and you're rich and you're poor and you're... And Paul says, no, none of that matters in Christ. You are one. 
So we, we, we covered so much more than justification, though that is a huge and vital component of this book. We covered the role of the Holy Spirit. We covered the freedom of the gospel. We covered union with Christ. And we covered the unity of the family of God, the people of God. And that unity needs to be re reflected in the church. Those were some of the beautiful themes that we saw in Galatians that can be traced all throughout the New Testament. But what I want us to do now is if you'll turn to Galatians chapter 1. Those were just some of my thoughts, some of my surprises, some of my meditations after we have finished the book of Galatians. But I want us to look at five, what I'm, again, I'm calling pillar doctrines. These are the doctrines that the whole book is built upon. This is why Paul wrote. This is what I'm hoping. These will be five sentences that you can take. And every time you think about the book of Galatians, this is the message. Pillar doctrine number one. Look at chapter one, verses six through eight. Paul opens his letter up. He gives a standard greeting, but this is really the beginning of his letter. He cuts right to the chase. Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you, we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So what's pillar doctrine number one? It's this, there is only one gospel. There is only one saving gospel. We live in an ecumenical world, a world that wants to accept all religions. They all lead to God some way. It's very rude to tell another religion they're wrong. It's very mean to tell another person their gospel doesn't save. We live in a very ecumenical world, but the way God actually made the world is not ecumenical. It's exclusive. There is only one way to the Father. There is only one true religion. There is only one true gospel. And anyone who would say otherwise, let him be accursed. Anyone who would distort that message, let him be accursed. There is one gospel. One true apostolic gospel. It's important for us, for them to know. Pillar number two, look at chapter two, verses 15 through 16. chapter 2 beginning in verse 15 Paul says this we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so excuse me so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Pillar doctrine number two, justification is by faith, not by works. There is only one gospel. Now what is that one gospel? That you are justified by faith, not by works. You are not justified by faith in the law. He doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, you are not justified by works of the law. But you are justified by faith and works of this new law. No, there is no law that comes into play in your justification. 
You were justified by one thing and one thing only, faith. And that's why Paul says, even we Jews, even we know this, that's why even the Jews have come to believe in Christ in order to be justified. Because the law can't do that. You are not justified by works. Justification is by faith, not by works. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. It's somewhat of an awkward place to begin, but for time's sake, I think it's a good place. Paul is continuing these rhetorical questions about how you have been justified by faith, not by works. You've received the Spirit by faith and not by works. He says in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So pillar number one is that there is one gospel. And what is that gospel in pillar number two? That you are justified by faith and not by works. And then Paul brings this in. How does this fit with the rest of the Old Testament? And here's how it fits. Pillar number three, the Abrahamic seed is a spiritual seed. The Abrahamic seed is a spiritual seed. And that is why the Abrahamic promise can be rightly administered to all those of faith. It was administered to Abraham by faith, not by nationality. And therefore, it is always administered to those of faith, not nationality. To be a child of Abraham is to believe in Jesus no matter where you were born. No, then, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Paul wants us to understand how justification in the New Testament relates to the Abrahamic promise, which was so important to every Jewish reader as it should have been. And so it is so important that Paul makes this point and he labors to make it throughout Galatians that we are sons of Abraham by faith. The Abrahamic seed is spiritual. But now these three pillars would lead to a natural uh, question. So what's the purpose of the law then? If we're not saved by the law, if all of this important stuff like circumcision and new moons and Sabbaths, if all of that is gone, why did God even give it in the first place? And that leads us to pillar number four. If you will turn, look, stay in chapter three, look at verses 21 and 22. Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. So pillar number four, the purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. Paul says it is a guardian, it is a tutor, it is a schoolmaster. It's your teacher that brings you to Christ. One of the ways it does that is by imprisoning everyone under sin. That's a pretty smart idea. 
Jesus is the forgi- Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness of sins. The law is the one that tells you you're a sinner. If, if you didn't know you were a sinner, you wouldn't need Jesus. So one of the most important ways the law brings you to Christ is by condemning you to hell. The law says you're terrible, you're going to hell. But there's a Savior coming, just so you know. The law, the purpose of the law, was never to be a means of justification. Paul says, if that was the purpose of the law, then I would agree with you. We're justified by works. But that wasn't the purpose. The purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ. So then, that brings up the next natural question. Okay, fine. So the purpose of the law was to lead me to Christ. The law can't save me, so I can just live however I want then. I'll just do whatever I want. And so that brings us to pillar number five. Paul breaks into the rest of the book, this important idea of being led by the Spirit, being under the Spirit, being transformed by the Spirit. Look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 18, to summarize a very lengthy discussion on his end. Chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says this. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So now that we are not under the law, now that we know the law's purpose, we just do whatever we want? No, we are to be led by the Spirit. He talks about how the desires of the flesh wage war against the Spirit. But we are to walk according to the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, to obey the Spirit. So justification by faith is not an excuse to lawlessness. But quite the contrary, justification by faith is our access to the Spirit, who is our access to righteousness. Paul's point when he mentions the fruit of the Spirit is to say, the irony is you think you have to obey God to receive the Spirit, but what Paul wants us to know is you can't obey God without the Spirit. Obeying God is the fruit of the Spirit. The law has no power to transform you. The law cannot create good works from you. It can give you a standard, but it it can't change you. The law can't make you love it. The law can't make you obey it. It's just a standard. It is the Spirit who transforms you. It is the Spirit who enables you. It is the Spirit who leads you. So Paul spends a great amount of Galatians reminding us that justification by faith, the one true gospel, that we are sons of Abraham by faith, that we are justified by faith, and that the law can't save you in no way, shape, or form is at all an argument to live lawless lives, but to walk according to the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Pillar number five, we are led by the Spirit, not the law. Pillar number five, we are led by the Spirit, not the law. So as we track Paul's arguments, here's what we learn in the book of Galatians. There is only one gospel. That you are justified by faith and not by works. That you are part of the family of God, descendants of Abraham, rightful heirs to the promise and blessings of Abraham by faith and not by works. Because the purpose of the law was not to save you, but to bring you to faith in Christ so that you can be transformed by his Holy Spirit and lead a holy life. There is one gospel. You were justified by faith and not by works. You are a child of Abraham by faith and not by works. The purpose of the law was to bring you to Christ. And once you're there, you will receive his spirit and you will be led by the spirit. You will walk according to the spirit and you will no longer be under the law. That, I believe, is a sufficient summary of the book of Galatians. And so it is my hope and conclusion that you were blessed by this book. That we learned about God, about the gospel about grace, about freedom, about the Spirit. And I lead you with these concluding thoughts. These are my hopes 
This is what I hope and have been praying that the Holy Spirit has done within us through the book of Galatians. I hope that Galatians left you with a zeal for the one true saving gospel. That this is a gospel that requires clarity and precision and it's worth fighting for. I hope Galatians brought you peace. As Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. I hope that Galatians brought you peace since you are reminded that you are made right with God, not on the basis of your performance. I hope that Galatians has unified us, not just as a church, but as an entire church Catholic with the whole church universal. As we remember that in Christ there are no distinctions, we are one in Christ. And that it unifies us with the church in every age. As we remember, we're all part of one family, Jesus' family, Abraham's family. By faith, we are all sons of Abraham. We share the blessings with Isaac, with Abraham. I hope you feel united to your church here, to the church universal, and to the Christians, of believers of every age, that we all come under the headship of Christ. I hope that Galatians provoked you to good works. I hope that at no point in time did we go through this book thinking, I'm justified by faith so I can do whatever I want but that we would remember the role of the Holy Spirit, that we would be led by the Spirit, that we would walk by the Spirit. I hope Galatians provoked you to good works. And lastly, I hope Galatians has comforted you with the invaluable role that God's Holy Spirit plays in your life. He seals you, He sanctifies you. We truly can do nothing without Him. 